Holy God and Father, you have promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. In our gospel reading for this morning, two disciples are traveling to Emmaus, a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. They are in shock and grief over the death of their Lord and ours. And the resurrected Christ joins them, but their eyes, we're told, are held back from recognition of who he is. And so our Lord asks, what are the two of you discussing? And they recount the tragic events of Holy Week, and and they basically, in so many words, they admit they've lost their faith in Jesus. And you can sense the frustration, perhaps even some anger, in Jesus when he replies, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now, let's stop right there. Where does the Old Testament say that? Where does the Old Testament say that the Messiah, the Christ, will suffer these things, meaning rejection and crucifixion, and then enter his glory? The Old Testament does not say that at least not in so many words. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus here makes the claim that the entire Old Testament is about him, and especially that the Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory. So where does the Bible, the Old Testament now, say that? Well, that brings us to Roman numeral one in our sermon outline, page 11 in your bulletin. What did Jesus teach the Emmaus disciples about the Old Testament while on the road? Did he quote some of the more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point forward to his ministry? Maybe he did that, he could have, but it wasn't really necessary. In verse 19 of our gospel reading, Cleopas says that Jesus was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word. Now, you and I know that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh, but he's also a prophet. And here's my question. What happened to all the prophets in the Old Testament? And what happened to John the Baptist in the New? All of them suffered rejection by their own people. All of them suffered opposition from the people of God. God's people either killed all of them or attempted to kill all of them. That includes Moses. Numbers 14, they tried to stone him. And that's a major theme throughout the Old Testament. You can't miss it if you're paying attention. Jesus could not have avoided 
speaking to the Emmaus disciples about that. So letter A, what is he speaking to them about? Letter A, the suffering of the righteous, among other things, the suffering of God's spokesmen. Down through the centuries, God's spokesmen spoke God's truth to God's people, and they suffered for it. And Jesus said to the audience of his day, this is from Luke 11, that the blood of all the prophets will be required of them and of their generation, from the blood of Abel in the book of Genesis all the way to the blood of Zechariah the prophet who was murdered between the altar and the sanctuary. That covers the entire old, almost the entire Old Testament history. The history of God sending messengers to his people is a violent one, and Jesus could not have avoided speaking about that to the Emmaus disciples. But he would also have spoken to them of, letter B, God's vindication of the righteous, God's deliverance of the righteous. It may not come today, but it will come. Deuteronomy 32, for the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. And what did Job say in chapter 19? For I know that my Redeemer lives. Against all the evidence confronting me today, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and he will vindicate me. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. My friends, if all of God's spokesmen suffered rejection, physical harm, even death, would you not expect God's ultimate spokesman, the Messiah, to suffer the same before he enters into his glory? The answer is yes, of course. That's what one should expect. It should come as no surprise. And that's what Jesus means when he says, was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Jesus didn't have to point to a particular verse saying that the Messiah would suffer rejection and death. He could point to the entire Old Testament witness to show how God's spokesmen were routinely rejected and killed in order to support his claim that the Messiah would also be rejected and killed and rise again. It had to be that way because it had always been that way. Let her see. What should the disciples have expected concerning Christ? We've already covered that. And what should we expect? My friends, all of the apostles suffered martyrdom except John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. And Jesus said, if the world hates me, it will also hate you. For example, the world today hates us for no other reason than that we hold to the biblical and historic definition of marriage as the lifelong union of one man and one woman and we hold that sexual expression should be reserved for the marriage bond. The world hates us simply because we will not validate its morality and we will not affirm its sexualization of children. The world hates us because we believe that the family is the most basic and the most important unit of government on earth and that parents are the most important teachers and leaders of their children. Such beliefs 
sadly, are today considered extreme. But right is right, even if no one is doing it. And wrong is wrong, even if everyone's doing it. God knows those who are his, and in the end, he will vindicate his people. Roman numeral two. Christ's teaching alone was not sufficient for recognition of his presence. That's verse 16. Their eyes are held back from recognizing him. So letter A, the meal, the meal becomes the place where Jesus is recognized. It's not in his teaching along the road that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. The meal is where he chooses to make himself known. The meal is where he chooses to be first seen and then unseen. Why? Why does he not reveal himself along the road but in the meal? And why does he suddenly disappear during the meal? Well, first, you must understand that the meal is the goal. The teaching leads up to the meal. The teaching is not an end in itself. The teaching prepares you for the meal. The meal is the goal. That Christ would reveal himself only during the meal emphasizes the importance of the meal, which for us today is the Lord's Supper. Even if the Emmaus meal wasn't, I don't know whether it was or wasn't the Lord's Supper. It's very similar if it's not the Lord's Supper, but for us the meal is the Lord's Supper. That's the meal Jesus left us. Second, the fact that he suddenly disappears during the meal means that from now on, in future meals, you should expect him to be bodily present like he was at Emmaus, but unseen as he became at Emmaus. That's going to be the pattern. Table fellowship with Jesus is the goal. That is the end he has in view. Letter B. However, it's not that the teaching is unimportant. It's very important. Christ's teaching is a necessary precondition for recognizing Jesus in the meal. His teaching is a necessary requirement for seeing Jesus in the meal. Before Jesus would reveal himself to his disciples in the meal, he had to teach them about himself and his work. That's why we instruct you before partaking of the sacrament. We believe Jesus is bodily present in the meal, but not in a visible way. Just as he said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. In 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul warns all of us about the adverse consequences of partaking of the meal if we do not discern the Lord's body in the meal. And as I've said many times, we want everyone to commune with us, but not everyone's ready at this moment. That's all. Instruction is necessary for everyone. That's why we instruct children. That's why we instruct adults. Letter C. The importance of meals in Scripture, you can't miss it. It begins in Eden, and I've noticed under letter C, I put asterisks by all of those meal events where there's teaching that accompanies the meal, and it's just, it's uh, ubiquitous. I mean, it's all over the place, right? It begins in Eden, 
where the Lord gives teaching, he gives instructions regarding how to eat. Now, the Lord seeks table fellowship with us. That's true throughout Scripture. And he teaches Adam and Eve how to eat there. You can eat from any tree of the garden, but from one you may not eat, you see. So there's the teaching, there's the instruction. And then through their disobedience, Adam and Eve, uh, through that meal, they plunge themselves and all of their descendants into sin. There's the Passover meal. And, uh, you know, there's teaching there too. The, the question is, now the children ask, why is this night different from all other nights? And then the head of the house says, well, you know, he explains the meaning of the Passover and the angel of death passing over the homes of the Israelites and striking down the firstborn of the Egyptian. And so on. there's this teaching that takes place. There's temple meals. Um, there's, there's Sabbath meals and so on. There's Christ table fellowship. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus doing two things with people. He teaches them and he eats with them. Those are the two things he's constantly doing. He's doing other things too, but preeminently those two things, the teaching and the tabling practices of Jesus. Then there's the Lord's Supper. There's teaching and tabling there, of course, and there's the Emmaus meal as well. So from Eden onward, Jesus, God, has sought to dine with us because that's what family does. We are members of God's family God's household, and so we get to share his table. Roman numeral three. The Emmaus meal inaugurates the meal fellowship of the Christian community. This is the beginning now of teaching and tabling in the New Testament. Letter A. This meal signals the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said. This is from... Luke 22, right before he institutes the sacrament, he says this. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, bear in mind, he is the true Passover lamb. The scripture is very clear about that. He's the true Passover lamb, and through his death and resurrection, he fulfills the Passover. So think of fulfillment as already having occurred. We live in the era of fulfillment. That's why he says, I won't eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, when did that happen? It happens today in our gospel lesson. Today at Emmaus, that prophecy comes to fulfillment. Now Jesus sits down to his first post-resurrection meal, and that signals that the kingdom of God has arrived. Remember when our Lord was crucified between two criminals? One of them said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, when did that occur? What did Jesus say? How did he respond? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, today he begins his reign in glory. So the Emmaus meal, letter B, also signals the expansion of the kingdom. It's growing now. It's going beyond Jerusalem. It, the meal, takes place beyond Jerusalem. This is in Emmaus. This is in Judea. Remember what, what Jesus said, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, 
and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then point number two, the Emmaus disciples are not among the 11. You know, Jesus shared the Lord's Supper. The first Lord's Supper was with his apostles only, the 11 or 12. Judas was there for a little while, then he left. We're not sure exactly when he left, but it was for them, right? Only the apostles were, were present because they had been taught by him. But now the meal is moving beyond the apostles to other disciples as well. So the ministry of the kingdom is expanding. And finally, let us see, the Emmaus meal signals our participation in the kingdom. You know, you'll notice on the front of your bulletin, it says, third Sunday of Easter, divine service. And you know what that means. It means the service of the Lord to you and me. He distributes his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And you'll notice on page four, at the top of the page in the bulletin, what does it say? The service of the word, okay? That's the Lord's teaching. It begins, it starts there. And then page 16, look at the, on page 16, the top of the page, it says the service of the sacrament. That's the Lord's table. You see, we continue this practice of Jesus. We actually have the nerve to believe that he's here, he's the host, he's doing the teaching, and he's distributing his body and his blood. And so point number two, the church with, opened, with the opened eyes of faith knows that until his return, our Lord will be present, present and yet unseen in the divine service. He is present and yet unseen. The Emmaus meal visually illustrates what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. For in the Emmaus meal, the body of Jesus is present and yet it becomes unseen. His body transitions to an unseen state. And until his return, this meal is how we will acknowledge his presence among us. Until his return, our willingness to participate in this meal is how we will continue to welcome him and to receive him. Notice, we're commanded to take and eat and to drink of it, all of you. These are commands, meaning all of you who have been instructed and who repent, take and eat and drink. For us, this meal is not optional. It's not something Christians are free to take or leave. For too long, my friends, too many Christians, sadly to say, Lutherans included, have had a casual, even careless attitude about attendance at the sacrament. And that, my friends, that is shameful. Too many of us think, well, I have other plans today. I'm too busy right now. Uh, you know, I'll just attend online, you see. And my friends, we need to repent of that attitude. When you attend online only, you miss the point of the service. The service of the word naturally prepares you for what? The service of the table. It leads you to the table. The table is the goal. The table is why we gather. Our participation in the table is how we acknowledge the Lord's presence in our midst. It's how we welcome and receive him every Lord's day. Now, if you're unable to attend for some reason or another, let me know. I'll bring the sacrament to you. It's that important. But the teaching and the table go together. 
God, God has joined them together. Jesus has joined them together, and we dare not separate them. Now, I want to close by quoting from Fred Craddock's commentary on the Gospel of Luke, uh, a paragraph, and, and I want you to listen carefully. I think he makes a very important point. Quote, The importance of experiencing the living Christ in both word and sacrament cannot be overemphasized. There were, says Luke, special appearances of the resurrected Christ to a number of his followers. In fact, Luke says that such appearances continued for 40 days before he was received up into glory. And yet, were that the whole of the story? All believers except those select few would experience only the absence of Jesus, and the rest of us would be little more than second-hand Christians, far removed from Jesus by time and place. But in the Emmaus account, Luke tells us that the living Christ is not only the key to our understanding of the Scriptures, but he's also the very present Lord who reveals himself to us in the meal. It is his real presence at the table that makes all of us first-generation Christians. And it is his presence at the table that makes every meeting place Emmaus. I repeat, it is his presence at the table that makes all of us first-generation Christians. And it is his presence at the table that makes every place Emmaus. And so I say to you, welcome to Emmaus. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.